Jeremy, thanks for having me. Um, Gerald, thanks for uh, explaining the HIC, HIC concept as you have. And uh, Peter, I think you uh, words of wisdom as always. But uh, it did worry me that uh, you said that the health, Private Health Insurance Act was a big problem for you because um, in 2006, 2007, um, I was the one who actually was responsible for steering it through the parliament. So not only being the GP co-payment guy, it looks like I've, I've sabotaged your progress as well. For the, so for that, I apologise. I'm going to talk, as I was asked to, about uh, the bigger picture in terms of the politics of healthcare reform and the challenges of thinking innovatively in healthcare and healthcare policy and healthcare practice uh, in the ways that we've just been hearing uh, because of the way that the political scene works in relation to, to health, to health and Medicare in general. As a result, I'm going to give you a bit of a case study from my experience as the GP co-payment guy. Uh, it's all my fault. The entire problems of the health system are all my fault. Tony Abbott, when I went round with him as his senior advisor, used to say to people, I'm Tony Abbott, I'm the health minister, I do all the good stuff. Terry Barnes, he's my senior advisor, he does all the bad stuff. So uh, clearly that's followed me through the rest of my career. So I'm going to talk about the GP co-payment experience as a case study in a sense, uh, and then I'll draw some lessons for health care reform from that. And I might ask a couple of uh, tough threshold questions, which I think that innovators and policymakers should keep in mind, particularly as we look ahead uh, to the needs of the Australian population in the next uh, decade or two. So in terms of the politics of reform, uh, the GP co-payment and Medi-Scare, as in the election campaign, showed how diabolical it can be to pursue structural and efficiency reform in the Australian healthcare system. Basically, to talk about uh, changing the settings of Medicare is like killing Bambi. Voters value what they conceive they have. And Medicare is clearly a sacred cow, and the co-payment experience uh, really highlighted that. And the fact that uh, Labor was able to run such an efficient scare campaign, which almost got them office, uh, on the basis of really nothing, uh, because people perceived they were losing Medicare as they understood it, became a disaster for the government. On top of that, the sector is infested with powerful practitioners, experts and vested interests that, who are all convinced that they know absolutely best and that the government, state and federal, they're there merely as payers for their grand schemes and ambitions and what they think is appropriate. And on top of all of that, as we saw with Medi-Scare, it's too easy for opponents of change to distort, mislead and even lie to ensure that they get what they want or the status quo remains. Governments and political parties attempting to place restrictions or conditions on access to healthcare therefore run a very risky gauntlet. Even positively and relatively benign reforms like the healthcare co home concept, and I actually think uh, the health innovation communities concept as well, uh, change relationships between patients, providers and payers and therefore threaten the status quo. So you have to expect the storm of, uh, storm of opposition to come down upon you. So it's up to governments and advocates of change to make clear how that change will work, what the benefits will be, and how patients, consumers and taxpayers will be better off. And from my own experience, it also means that you've got to be willing to make a blood sacrifice to the ravenous bug bladder beast of trial, for those of you who remember The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which uh, is actually known in Australia as the Australian Medical Association. <laughs> Having said that, Though, in terms of the politics of the present healthcare debate, 
I fail to understand why the Turnbull government went into the recent election campaign without a health policy. It had a couple of uh, couple of announcements, including the healthcare homes, uh, the yeah, the healthcare home trial. But when you think about it, the last time a government went for re-election or an opposition went for an election without a clear, coherent narrative for its health vision was 1990 when Peter Schack actually stood up just before the election and said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have a health policy. Uh, we saw a repetition of that, and I think it actually cost the government because they couldn't actually respond to the Medi-Scare. And that, uh, uh, look, the rest is history in that respect. Um, and the fact that uh, they almost lost the election over Medi-Scare, I haven't seen any real evidence of them forming a narrative after the election and more to the point making it clear that they see health and health reform and health policy and the stability of the system as a top priority for the second term coalition government. But on the other side, I mean, what have we got from Labor? I mean, basically we have had for the last, uh, really since the co-payment uh, broke in the end of, um, just after the Abbott government was elected in December 2013, uh, just pushback. It's, it's just been all negative. It's just been, I hear your pain, so I will throw money at all the bad things the government's done and make it better for you, and put a Band-Aid and kiss it better. And, uh, and the election campaign itself was basically, besides the fact it was founded on a lie, uh, all, all the, the health policy that Labor put forward was of that nature. It was, uh, um, I, I wrote recently that uh, the real imitator of Donald Trump in Australian politics is not Pauline Hanson, it's actually Bill Shorten because of the, the resorting to populism that, uh, that under his leadership the Labor Party is resorting to and therefore uh, uh, is actually creating a big problem for the healthcare conversation or the policy conversation in general. But on the other side, the government doesn't have a clear sense of where it's going. So that actually creates very fertile ground for scare campaigns, for uncertainty and for um, making discontent. So with that context, I'll tell you about my own experience and my own thoughts about GP co-payment debate, uh, which in political terms came from nowhere. Uh, it just blew up as a story and it just kept on going. And uh, now I'm the GP co-payment guy and the, the architect of the government's ill-fated plan, according to uh, everybody who doesn't realise that I actually had nothing to do with the government's plan. They did their own thing. They just let me run the debate uh, before they were ready to go public. It got currency because of the fact that um, just after the government was elected, I did that paper for a, a, another think tank called the um, Institute for Health Research, and uh, uh, and uh, it was reported that it was being put to the Commission of Audit, and the and the Prime Minister at the time, uh, Tony Abbott, uh, was asked about the the idea of a co-payment, didn't uh, confirm or deny anything in true budget speculation style. So off we went. So. It became uh, on for young and old, and uh, and really what uh, happened over the next uh, year or so, I think, has really set the cause of health reform back uh, a long, long way, and I'm personally quite uh, sorry for that. But uh, instead of rightly being a second-order structural and efficiency measure, which is the way it was put forward, you know, not no magic bullet in it. It was never a magic bullet, never intended to be. It was meant to be part of suggesting how the system could be made more effective, more, more uh, robust and more patient and, and uh, payer responsive. It was not intended to be the single solving problem, you know, the measure to solve the problems of the system. It became, the co-payment, it became an ugly cackling hag that hijacked the political and policy agenda. 
Besides the fact it wasn't a magic reform bullet, the implacable opposition and resistance of vested interests, especially Brian Aller and the AMA, was totally underestimated. And the budget decision itself to link the outlay savings to a humongous medical research fund, instead of recycling those savings if they're going to do something political into health and hospital services and infrastructure, was mystifying and totally out of left field, politically naive and frankly a big, big mistake. What the government really didn't do before that budget in 2014 was read the politics of the Senate and therefore gauge the chance of the enabling legislation passing. They thought that they would have a better chance after July 14 with the, the new Senate included people like uh, Jackie Lambie and the Parliament United Party, but how wrong they were. Um, they needed to start making a rational policy case for greater patient contributions for primary care full stop, but they didn't. Uh, there is a genuine equity argument that says people on higher incomes shouldn't expect bulk billing as a right and should actually contribute in some way according to their capacity to help those less well off, but we never heard it. The government didn't start sending a message to those uh, who could do so, they must do their bit. Uh, but they didn't also understand the details and implications of what they were proposing in many respects. Uh, Post-budget estimates hearings revealed that modelling of the co-payment uh, measure was minimal or non-existent. And I understand that a lot of the uh, thinking actually happened in political offices, not in the bureaucracy or using expert advice. And they certainly didn't take my advice or at least uh, consult me on my experience in um, trying to explain the concept uh, publicly. Uh, and the other issue which is key here is that it showed that it was primarily, the government that is, is primary, primarily concerned about access, not about access and efficiency, but about booking budget bottom line savings in 2014. So they rushed to judgment to get a proposal out there so they could actually have a figure in the budget papers that could actually show that they were reducing uh, uh, debt and deficit. And the government's subsequent attempts to refine and then redesign the co-payment plan after uh, later in uh, 2014 and into early 2015 didn't make things better. In fact, I think they made things a lot worse. The government and, the, and its you know, key ministers, uh, health ministers, treasurers, uh, prime ministers even, didn't quite look like they knew what they were doing. And the improvements are actually more complex and more messier than the co-payment Mark I. And again, the government's attempts at explaining and defending these changes were awful. And the change of minister in December 2014, in my view, made little difference. But the fallout from the whole co-payment debate and the political outcomes were a disaster for general health care reform. Both the coalition and Labor adopted a common position when you think about it, and that is this, that they we, the Labor Party or the coalition parties, will not pursue difficult, pursue difficult reform in health care unless the medical profession is on board. And in practice, that means that the AMA is the arbiter of uh, who comes to Medicare and the circumstances in which they come. And despite the AMA leadership changing from the outspoken demagogue, uh, demagogue Brian Aller to uh, the far more reasonable and moderate Michael Gannon, that hasn't really changed. Really, the AMA sets the pace here. Um, Gerald and Peter need to convince Michael Gannon and his members that what they are proposing will work if it is ever going to succeed. Whether that's a, a good thing, uh, you can make your own judgment. I don't think it is a good thing. But what the government should have done is this. One, it should have started tilling the ground well before the 2014 budget, perhaps even before the 2013 election, notwithstanding the political risks, 
to get public acceptance of the need for some reform around bulk billing and patient contributions. Clearly, uh, it needed to explain what the problem was. And there is a problem. Uh, when certainly, and certainly, uh, if you are going to change the system, and given that Medicare is such a sacred cow, you'd need to be able to start talking sooner rather than later. But because of budget secrecy, uh, and not, neither confirm or deny what's in the budget, they didn't do that. They were quite happy to let me be the canary in the coal mine. And as you can see, I'm not the best communicator in the world. Uh, but they wanted to see if I uh, suffocated and, and, and died in the political in the political hothouse of the co-payment debate. And I didn't. Uh, and, and look, I'm quite proud of that. I, I, I actually was able to prosecute a case uh, uh, publicly and in the media and, uh, and in writing uh, to actually show that this could work and it had a reasonable basis to it. Um, and But the government didn't realise, they say, oh, look, if Terry can do it, we can do it too. The thing is, I was just an, an obscure former government advisor doing a paper for an obscure think tank, not the Treasurer and the Prime Minister and the government of the country uh, making this measure the centrepiece of a tough budget. Uh, they just didn't, ex they didn't expect the flack they got because they thought, oh, this, you know, the, the actual debate in the run-up to the budget, it was relatively benign in, in broad political terms. They did not set the whole plan in a wider health policy, but also in a wider fiscal and general reform context. They didn't actually uh, uh, till the ground themselves. They uh, may have flagged, they could have flagged their intentions instead of going for the 2014 budget with a fully developed plan. They could have started a process of consultation and engagement that might have got an outcome that was sound policy and politically defensible and avoided most of the unfair features of the budget plan, but also a lot of the political pain. And I actually suggested at one point when it was going rough for them that uh, perhaps they could actually give the Productivity Commission a reference to do that process and to lead those consultations and to keep it at arm's length from government. But uh, that didn't go anywhere either, um, except the back page of the Fin Review. Um, as I say, taking the timing out of the budget process would have helped a lot, and most of all, perhaps sacking the bright spark who proposed hypothecating those savings to that medical research fund. They had no sense of policy and they had no sense of politics, and, uh, um, and I suspect their knowledge of, uh, of uh, the healthcare sector could be written on the back of a postage stamp, and uh, I will name no names, but you could possibly guess who I'm talking about. In terms of the consequences of the policy failure, it certainly killed off the coalition's appetite for more, doing anything more than tweaking Medicare and healthcare generally. It's emboldened Labor to make uh, itself uh, a populist champion of the people, blocking even minor changes such as the proposed uh, um, down, uh, reducing of uh, pathology and uh, diagnostic imaging bulk billing incentives. And uh, in a way, it set uh, Medicare in politically unbreakable concrete. I mean, if uh, you accepted Bill Shorten and Catherine King, the shadow health minister's rhetoric from the election campaign about Medicare, we will not cut Medicare, we will not touch Medicare, to simply cut a dollar from Medicare would be a breach of Labor's election promises. Uh, they've, they've actually dug themselves in such a hole that if uh, they ever got to implement their plan, that they would be in political trouble, perhaps even more diabolical than the co-payment experience. But the other side of that, I think, is uh, that uh, it's going to 
because of the success of Medi-Scare in particular, it's going to be very hard for rational policy plans and proposals to get a fair hearing and to more to the point to get a fair run and a trial. And that's that's a real worry I think that we have to consider. Um, again, it, it made the AMA the chief arbiter of what's possible and what isn't in terms of the healthcare system and further entrenched the vested interests that strangle Australian healthcare innovation. And that is largely people in the system and those uh, self-appointed experts who uh, I believe that they are the guardians of uh, Medicare. Um, the fact that somebody else has to pay for it, and that basically is you, you and I, uh, doesn't really occur to them. And the ultimate consequence, of course, is that we will continue to waste billions of taxpayer dollars that could be better spent or, or saved. And Peter talked about that, you know, the waste before. But I, I remember when I worked in the health department many years ago, I had a colleague with a screensaver, half of all health expenditure is wasted. The problem is we don't know which half. And as I say, for my, my role in this debate, and, and um, while I didn't start it, I, I certainly kicked it along, uh, and, but I've helped create an anti-reform state of affairs, and for that uh, I, I'm truly sorry and uh, I, I apologise. In terms of implications for major healthcare reform from here, as I said, the GP co-payment was a relatively minor proposal in the bigger scheme of things that got blown out of proportion. It almost brought down a government and was a big factor in the downfall of a PM. And in fact, I thought of calling this talk Tony Abbott, my part in his downfall. Yet there's no doubt that truly fundamental reform of the system such as we've been hearing about is needed as the Australian population ages and the whole population starts to show the acute and especially chronic consequences of our soft and namby-pamby, sedentary, self-indulgent and lazy lifestyles. And uh, sugar taxes won't solve those problems, by the way. And let's not forget the spiteful, dysfunctional marriages of federal and state and public and private responsibilities for healthcare funding and service delivery. Our federation, indeed, is perhaps the biggest single drawback to meaningful healthcare reform. Yet we cannot easily remake the federation, and it sets the agenda whether we like it or not. In fact, I remember uh, at the time of the GP co-payment, a, a liberal state health minister who uh, uh, I knew, um, besides blaming me for all his troubles, um, also harked back to Tony Abbott's push to have a single federal payer of, uh, of public you know, health money and uh, said, well, if, you, you know, if Abbott did something like that, that would actually do a lot of state politicians out of a job. I mean, that's, that's uh, uh, sorry, Peter, I think that's the way that uh, many people at state level think. Um, and, and I suppose pre-selection candidates would worry about. Um, the GP co-payment and Labor's successful Medi-Scare I think ultimately showed that the Whitlam-Hawke Medicare settlement is not easily tampered with. The Australian public won't readily tolerate even minor change to that settlement, let alone major renovation, and that's because of the politics around it. The grounds for such changes therefore need to be well tilled and in the populist rent-seeking mentality that now dominates our politics requires political courage, real political courage that I think is sadly lacking. Indeed, I fear genuine big thinking by genuine big thinkers, such as we've heard tonight. Uh, it scares politicians in government, and it provides easy targets to the oppositionists, opportunists, and populists who dominate federal and state agendas these days. And by opposition, I don't just mean short and labour. I mean any party or leader seeking to gain office by playing to the fears of voters rather than to their aspirations. Indeed, 
When vote-hungry opposition shred a government's record on obsolete measures like bulk billing rates, public hospital beds and waiting times and pander too much to the wishes of doctors, like that is the AMA, rather than the best interest of patients and taxpayers, we get reform paralysis, not a climate of innovation. So aligning reform aspirations to, to community aspirations and expectations, therefore, is a big challenge for genuine health policy thinkers and reformers. The first big step is understanding those aspirations and expectations and making fundamental change evolutionary rather than evolution, evolutionary, sorry, rather than revolutionary. And I also think it needs to ask, as we go through this policy debate, some pretty tough questions and make some, some, some um, uh, challenging conclusions. So despite the failure of the co-payment, it's essential to plug away at uh, the Australian community's entrenched mindset about Medicare and, and, and healthcare provision. Medicare is a healthcare access scheme. It is not a middle-class welfare and entitlement scheme as politicians, particularly uh, those uh, on the left of politics, condition us to think it. The better off should not expect bulk billing, and all of us should ass not assume that health services are an ever-running, bottomlessly funded tap. I think we also need to start asking ourselves some very difficult social and ethical questions about what services are provided and paid for by taxpayers, including for people who voluntarily assume risks that damage or destroy good health. Smokers, for instance, shouldn't expect to be top of the queue for expensive treatment arising from the habit. People who attend emergency departments to be patched up after alcohol-fueled brawls should not expect free treatment. People who contract type 2 diabetes because of their lifestyle choices shouldn't expect everyone to, uh, to pick up the full tab for their own imprudence. And private health insurance should at least have some element of risk rating, including positive rewards for those doing the right thing by themselves and by others. And that includes taking steps to do the right things. And as medical science gets better and better at keeping people going, is there such a thing as providing too much health care? There are too many people with chronic conditions, in my view, particularly the very old, who are kept going, but whose quality of life as a result is poor, perhaps or even almost non-existent. We do need, I think, to have a conversation about the right balance between keeping people alive when their lives become miserable. And uh, people and families perhaps should not expect that taxpayers should keep the keep the stringing things out indefinitely. But on the other hand, I think, uh, um, perhaps we as a community need to change our own mindsets and our own expectations about what's right, particularly as we reach the end of our lives. Um, and you know, we, can't, we can't go forever. And in areas like uh, IVF, where the physical and emotional cost on patients is terribly high, the chances of successful outcomes depressingly low, and corporate imperatives actually manipulate demand, it's arguable that treatment subsidies should be strictly limited if they are to be applied at all. And I also think that preventing and mitigating illness and injury risk should be a greater part of the healthcare service delivery and funding picture, provided that it involves genuine harm reduction based on people taking responsibility for themselves. I've taken a, a bit of a policy interest in um, vaping as a form of uh, you know, quitting smoking and uh, uh, getting, getting people off the deadly weed, um, because uh, uh, according to the emerging body of evidence, it's uh, 
it, some say it's at least 95% safer than smoking, yet uh, Australian regulation virtually suppresses it uh, if it involves nicotine. Um, but the thing is, uh, when the Australian public health care establishment prefers to keep things as they would like them to be, as opposed to accepting the possibility of disruptive innovation actually leading to genuine improvement in health outcomes, we have a real problem. But when we also have a situation where uh, politicians as fun funders and regulators of the healthcare system are too afraid to do anything that challenges the status quo, who, that challenges received wisdom, that uh, is prepared to go elsewhere for advice and guidance. We're going to get nowhere and it's, we're talking you know, right across the board but I just think in the public health space it is really a problem. To wrap up, these are tough emotional and confronting conversations but they need to be had and I believe they must be had. A genuine climate of healthcare reform can't be created if questions like these are set aside. They help create a definition of what's possible. But uh, I think the point of all of this is that sadly our political class is not up to providing the courageous thought leadership that makes innovative reform possible. I mean, Peter talked about inoculating the public. I actually think it's the other way around. We should be inoculating our political leaders to, to feel that they can take on the vested interests, take on the the, the, the populists and the opportunists and, and actually do something courageous and actually set us on the road to a better healthcare system, better healthcare outcomes and a more efficient use of taxpayers' money. Thank you.